From NPR, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Getting tested to find out how many synthetic chemicals are in your body is a growing trend among health-conscious Americans these days. And many folks are getting a big surprise when the results come in. I grew up in Colorado, a high mountain town, far away from factories and industry and incinerators, right? Growing our own cattle, our own vegetables. So the fact that I had these high levels said a couple of things. First of all, there's no little marker on that chemical that says it was manufactured by this company or this is where you got it. There's no way I can send a bill to anyone for using my body as a toxic waste site. The movement for biomonitoring in the industrial age. Also, the big business of illegal logging and its impact on human rights and the environment. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. From the Amazon to Indonesia, forests around the world are disappearing at what some call alarming rates, and much of the cutting is being done in violation of the law. Illegal logging is linked to environmental and human rights abuses around the world. And the issue is garnering the attention of a growing number of parties, from global forest activists to the President of the United States. Today we'll be talking to a number of people involved in trying to stop illegal logging. Joining me today will be Patrick Alley, Director of Global Witness, a British organization that documents how contraband lumber supports war. We'll also be talking with Scott Paul of Greenpeace, the organization that's been indicted by the U.S. Justice Department for its protests against illegal logging. And we'll hear from John Turner, Assistant Secretary of State, about what the Bush administration is doing to help other countries do away with illegal logging within their borders. But first, Living on Earth, Cynthia Graber joins me. Hi, Cynthia. Hello, Steve. Now, Cynthia, you've been following this story for some time. Tell me, what do we mean by the term illegal logging? Well, we're talking about timber that's cut down and used, and today we're actually talking mostly about timber that's exported without the legal oversight of the host country. There are a lot of ways it can be illegal. There could be a protected area, and people are going in and logging. Um, There could be a company that has rights to log an area, but they take more wood than they have the right to, or they take trees outside that area. It often happens out in the middle of nowhere, and there's a pretty rough crowd involved. I was in Brazil working on a story about the wood used for violin bows. The people I was talking to told me about logging in general in Brazil, and they told me that it's just as lucrative a crime ring as drugs, and the people are just as rough. The World Bank agrees about how lucrative it is. According to their figures, the trade in illegal timber accounts for $15 billion. That's taking into account numbers such as the worth of the wood and the lost taxes and revenues to the home countries. Just to put that into context, it's the same as all the money the World Bank gives out to all the governments they work with in the world. But, Steve, just to be clear, legal logging doesn't necessarily mean it's sustainable. But everyone working on this agrees. First, the logging needs to be legal so there can be some oversight, and then you can talk about sustainability. Now, I can imagine that uh, illegal logging takes place, uh, what, just about everywhere. But, Cynthia, tell me, where is this most prevalent? Where is it a really big problem? It's probably most significant in tropical countries where there's a lot of timber and often not enough oversight. Just to give you an idea, here are some statistics again from the World Bank. More than 90% of the wood coming out of Cambodia, more than 80% of the wood coming out of Brazil, Bolivia, Peru, Benin, For Indonesia, and if you go shopping, you'll see that a lot of wood products come from Indonesia. The figures are anywhere from half to three-fourths of the wood coming out of the country as illegally sourced. Well, obviously, with this kind of cutting, uh, you're seeing massive deforestation. There's going to be some huge environmental consequences, I would think. Absolutely. Deforestation itself is such a huge problem, and you have related impacts of trees not holding in water and uh, the soil. This can lead to huge floods, and there's a really big human impact there. There were floods recently in Indonesia that left 200 people dead. That was said to be due to loosened soil on the hillsides from illegal logging. There are also billions of people in the world, many of them living at poverty, who depend on the forest for use of its resources. And then, of course, there's loss of habitat. Bruce Cabarly is director of the World Wildlife Fund's Global Forest Program. He told me that there are 200 places that the World Wildlife Fund is focusing its resources on protecting, and almost a third of them are threatened by illegal logging. He had this to say about the Indonesian island of Sumatra, which is one of the last strongholds for endangered elephants, tigers, and rhinos. And at the current rates of deforestation, which are largely driven by illegal logging to feed pulp mills, 
we can see the elimination of all remaining lowland tropical rainforest on the island of Sumatra within the next five years if action isn't taken. Hmm. Well, Cynthia, the U.S. is one of the world's biggest importers of forest products. How do we know uh, when we buy stuff at the store that it's been legally harvested? I mean, I got some lawn furniture recently. There was nothing on it that said it was legal or illegal. There's actually no way for you to know if it's legal or illegal wood. There is an organization called the Forest Stewardship Council, and they certify, along with groups that they work with around the world, they certify sustainably harvested wood. And if it's FSE certified and it's sustainably harvested, then it is legal. Other than that, there really isn't a way to know. All concerned citizens can do is ask. And by asking, they'll let companies know that they're interested. Thanks, Cynthia. You're welcome. And please stick with me as we bring in our first guest. Patrick Alley is one of the founders of the London-based group called Global Witness. That's an organization that exposes how conflicts around the world are fueled by trade in natural resources such as oil, diamonds, and, of course, illegal logging. So uh, tell us, Patrick Alley, how did you first get involved in this issue? Well, myself and uh, the two colleagues who, uh, together with me, founded Global Witness, we used to work for an environmental organization around about uh, whoa, 10, 12 years ago. And we saw a few areas in the world where... You didn't really know if a situation was an environmental problem or a human rights problem or a conflict problem, and and we we sort of mulled over those ideas for a while. And I think the the thing that really illustrated it for us is we were individually interested in Cambodia, and at that time the uh, Khmer Rouge guerrillas in Cambodia controlled the northern and western borders of the country and maintained their war effort through the trade in timber with Thailand. And we thought, well, you know, if you close that border then you cut off their funding, they can't fight their war. Why doesn't somebody do that? And, and we thought, well, why don't we? We knew enough to, to think we could try. So that, that's how we uh, set about beginning Global Witness. And how did you do it? Were you able to shut down that trade? We, we did, actually. Half of what we do is to gather information. We, we believe that with primary information that we find out ourselves from investigations, covert investigations perhaps, if you find that information, then no one can really argue with you. And, and when, once you have the information, then it's a question of pulling the right levers to achieve change and that those levers will be different in every situation. But in uh, the case of Cambodia, what we did was to... We went into the timber companies posing as European timber buyers. We figured the only way they'd tell us anything is if they thought they were going to get money from us. Gradually, over time, we found out the whole trail from uh, the whole chain of custody of the timber and were able to document the scale of the trade, which at that time was around about $20 million per month. And then it was a question of trying to mobilize international forces to close the border. I um, mentioned earlier that I heard down in Brazil about people profiting from illegal logging, that it's basically a crime network similar to drugs. I know you work in Africa as well as Asia. What similarities have you seen there? I would say in our experience, whoever is doing it, whether it's a guerrilla group or a criminal gang or even people connected to the government, and it very often is that, they are robbing the state's resources. So they need all of the networks that criminal gangs have to maintain that operation, which makes looking at illegal logging, especially for local people in a lot of countries, extremely dangerous. And it goes hand in hand very often with the drug trade, with the arms trade. And we've looked particularly at uh, the timber trade funding conflict. And then you're linking up with the Russian mafia, Ukrainian mafia. I mean, it's, it's a very nasty business. And I imagine they don't want you poking around in this, Patrick. I mean, if these are criminal enterprises, as you say, you must have had some pretty um, difficult experiences investigating and reporting this stuff. Anything you could share with us? Yeah, I mean, I could give you a couple of examples. I'd highlight the fact we don't go looking for trouble. But, for example, in the time when we were looking at the Khmer Rouge trade, we were always very conscious of the fact we were on the Thai border, but literally, you know, maybe a kilometre or two away, you'd have a Khmer Rouge base. I remember going into a timber company, which was quite a way off the, the main road in Thailand, so we were in quite a remote area. The nearest place, really, was the, the border where the Khmer Rouge were. And we were watching, we were filming secretly uh, logs coming in on trucks from Khmer Rouge territory. And then the uh, the people in the, the logging camp realized that maybe we weren't who we said we were, and they actually chased us out of there. So we, we had a, a little car chase on these dirt roads in Thailand. And danger comes in different ways as well. I, I was doing an investigation in Harare in Zimbabwe uh, a couple of years ago, looking at their links with the, the Timber Trade and Democratic Republic of Congo, what I was doing wasn't particularly dangerous in itself. I was in town. I was asking questions. I wasn't trying to pretend to be anyone else. 
But the day after myself and my colleague left, there were front-page stories in the government press accusing us of being the British intelligence services. Now, had they caught us when we were there, I mean, you know what happens to spies. That might not have been nice. Now, you say that there's a lot of criminal enterprise involved here, but at the end of the day, this is a human rights issue as far as you're concerned? I guess the reason Global Witness began was to try and cross this nexus of environment and human rights. If you look at these situations, and you can look at Cambodia or Cameroon or the Congo or Liberia, you get different things in different places. But if you've got an illegal operation worth hundreds of millions of dollars, if people try and look at that operation, so say journalists or local people, and protest against it or document it, they do get intimidated, they do get shot at, and they do get killed. That's one side of it. Also, if there is illegal logging, it is generally by definition unsustainable logging. That has ecological effects, which affects agriculture. So very often, in especially tropical forests, you're looking at terribly poor countries. People very often dependent on the forests and also farming. If the forests get destroyed, they've only got farming, but the destruction of the forests affects their farming. And they get poorer and poorer and poorer. And that's a challenge for all of us who are working on this issue. Patrick, you mentioned um, work you've been doing in Africa, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what are the conflicts that are being funded by this trade in timber? Well, a really good example uh, that we've been concentrating on for the last two years is Liberia, where, as you probably know, the uh, former president, Charles Taylor, held sway there since he won his civil war. He was responsible for fomenting um, regional unrest. He funded the infamous RUF rebels in Sierra Leone responsible for the the murder of thousands of people and the amputation of limbs of men, women and children. The money that he used to fund them came from both the diamond trade and when diamonds were sanctioned by the United Nations Security Council, he focused on timber and the timber trade provided the money for him to do that. And also the the ships that were bringing or coming away to take away the timber were bringing in arms. The uh, equipment that the logging companies used to build the roads in the timber concessions were used to build roads that were strategically useful. And the logging company fine, uh, funded the particular uh, the biggest company uh, a two and a half thousand strong militia, uh, which was used to help the Liberian armed forces. So you had really a whole civil war, which was affecting the lives of millions of people in in West Africa, funded by timber. So how do you change that? What we had to do in the case of Liberia, it was too dangerous for us to actually go to Liberia because we'd made public comments and Charles Taylor had publicly uh, highlighted our organisation as a problem for him. But what we would do is we'd go to uh, Guinea, to the Ivory Coast, Sierra Leone, the neighbouring countries, and basically talk to everyone we could, whether it's journalists, politicians, child soldiers, logging workers, and build up a picture. And when you start investigating like that, generally you'll find that people start leaking information to you. So we, we... we're fortunate enough to obtain information belonging to the Ukrainian mafia showing the logging deals that they were doing and the arms they were supplying. And then you've got to work out, well, where do I use that? In this particular case, the, the United Nations Security Council had already got sanctions on various things against Liberia, including diamonds, but not timber. And so we focused our lobbying efforts on going to New York with the information over a period of two years, trying to get timber sanctions in. And, and finally, in July uh, 2003, we succeeded in that. Not long after that, Charles Sader was thrown from power, and, and there's certainly a link there. We're talking about illegal logging and its environmental and human rights impacts around the world. My guest is Patrick Alley, director of the London-based organization Global Witness. In just a minute, we'll be joined by a member of Greenpeace to talk about how that group's work to expose illegal logging has led to some legal entanglements with the Bush administration. And we'll also hear from a member of the Bush administration about what it's doing to control illegal logging. I'm Steve Kerwood with Cynthia Graver. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the World Media Foundation Environmental Information Fund. Major contributors include the National Science Foundation, supporting environmental education, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, supporting the Living on Earth Network, Living on Earth's expanded Internet service, the William and Flora Hewlett Foundation for coverage of Western issues, the Educational Foundation of America for coverage of energy and climate change, the David and Lucille Packard Foundation for Reporting on Marine Issues, and the Wellborn Ecology Fund. Welcome back to Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Our topic is the trade in illegal lumber that's become an environmental nightmare in many of the world's developing nations and a source of funds for world conflicts. Our guest, Patrick Alley, Director of Global Witness, is back with us. 
We'll also speak to Scott Paul of Greenpeace about its exposés of illegal logging operations. John Turner, Assistant Secretary of State for Oceans, International Environment, and Scientific Affairs, will also join us for the Bush administration's viewpoint on illegal logging around the world. First, Patrick, let me ask you this. What's your next target? What's perhaps the most urgent place for your work? Democratic Republic of Congo. Why? Because it's a country in a post-conflict situation. It's very big. It has some of the richest forest reserves, not to mention uh, other resources such as gold, diamonds, cobalt, copper, you name it. The war that has killed uh, over three million people over the last five years has been fought mainly over resources. And lots of businesses are, are dying to get in there to exploit those resources. And I think the international community is, uh, and certainly the Congolese government, are not really prepared enough for that onslaught. And I think there's a danger that logging companies, for example, will get hold of concessions in areas with, with the support of organisations like the World Bank. And I think it's a really important issue to try and make sure that in that country, unlike many others, that the resources in a post-conflict situation are dealt with in a sensible way that actually helps the country and doesn't uh, act to its detriment. Patrick, thanks so much for taking this time with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Patrick Alley is Director of Global Witness. Joining me now is Scott Paul. He's campaign coordinator of Greenpeace's Forest Initiative. Hello, how are you? Good. I'm glad you can come on the show. And I want to ask you about Greenpeace and the critical role that you've played in telling the world about illegal mahogany coming out of Brazil. When did these uh, illegal logging operations first get the attention of Greenpeace? Yeah, about three years ago, uh, the Greenpeace office in Manaus, Brazil, started really investigating and documenting the mahogany trade in Brazil. Brazil is the world's largest exporter of mahogany. What we did is we went out in the field, we checked government records, we tried to locate everywhere that the uh, records show that people were supposed to be logging, and really after about a year uncovered a system of gross illegalities where no one was logging where they're supposed to be. We had fraudulent documentation, fraudulent transport papers. And in September of 2001, we gave that information to the Brazilian federal prosecutor. Uh, shortly after that, the Brazilian government conducted a series of field investigations. And in October of 2001, the Brazilian government completely suspended their mahogany trade in an extremely highly unprecedented move. There was a load of mahogany, I guess. Uh, you and some other Greenpeace members, I, I gather, boarded a, a boat off the coast of Miami you said contained illegal mahogany logs from Brazil. Uh, what happened? Yeah, back in, in April of 2002, a 1,000-foot uh, cargo container ship came into the port of Miami carrying approximately 70 tons of mahogany. This uh, shipment came in during the period where the Brazilian government still had a national moratorium on exports. So a little more than three miles off the coast of Florida, two Greenpeace activists boarded the APLJ with a banner reading, President Bush, Stop Illegal Logging. Now, you were part of that protest on the boat, as Yes, I, I was. I was arrested in that uh, protest. The, the Coast Guard came out, and all the Greenpeace vessels in the vicinity were, were rounded up and taken over to the Coast Guard dock. Uh, we spent the day in the dock, and ironically, most of the Coast Guard officials were telling us, you know, this will be cleared up in an hour, this will be cleared up in two hours. And we spent the weekend in the Miami Federal Penitentiary. On Monday morning, we were released. Eventually, six people, including myself, were charged with a law from 1872. I'm one of the first people in over 100 years to be uh, convicted of this law that has to do with sailor mongering. Basically, the law was put into place to make sure that brothels and bordellos were not enticing sailors that were coming into their facilities to run up large bills, and then, then they'd be unavailable to leave when the ship had to go. Now, as I understand it, that your organization was also named in this criminal indictment. Well, this is where it actually gets very interesting. Uh, the Miami protest back in uh, April of 2002 was, was a pretty standard Greenpeace protest, uh, peaceful, nonviolent civil disobedience. Fifteen months later, uh, the Bush administration has indicted Greenpeace as an organization uh, under the same 1872 law. This is the first time in U.S. history uh, going through the civil rights movements, uh, the anti-apartheid movement, the animal rights and, and right to life movements, that the federal government has chosen to indict an organization for the activities of its supporters. What would happen if Greenpeace was convicted? Well, 
first of all, there would be a $10,000 fine. We could also lose our tax-exempt status, which is quite significant for a group like Greenpeace that does not take any money from corporations or does not take any money from any governments. If you were convicted, how much could the government look at your activities? Well, we would be placed on a, a five-year probation, uh, and the government would be able to, uh, at its will, inspect our financial records, uh, our membership role, any other internal information that we have at any time, and stiffer penalties would be... Um, would be doled out for any subsequent Greenpeace protest, you know, jaywalking, what have you, um, would become quite serious at that point. This case is still underway. Uh, Where do things stand right now? Uh, Back uh, on December 12th, we had our first pretrial motions where we filed three motions, one to dismiss because the 1872 law that we've been charged with does not actually fit. So we're, if we filed a motion for dismissal, we also filed the motion because we want a jury trial. Uh, the government does not want to give us a jury trial. And then also the selective prosecution motion. Uh, the judge, we don't know when he'll be ruling on those particular uh, motions. Uh, trial date has been set tentatively for May of this year. But we've had an awful lot of groups rally around us because this case is really much bigger than Greenpeace. The NAACP, the ACLU, People for the American Way, a lot of environmental groups, NRDC, Defenders of Wildlife, et cetera, et cetera, have really rallied to Greenpeace's uh, defense on this because this is really uh, uh, could send chilling First Amendment effects if we are convicted. Scott, in a few minutes, we're going to hear from uh, John Turner, who's the Assistant Secretary of State uh, for the Oceans, International Environment, and Scientific Affairs. He's going to talk about the president's initiative on illegal logging. What's your opinion of that initiative? The the United States has actually shown a lot of leadership on the issue of illegal logging. This predates the current administration. Uh, The U.S. government is probably largely responsible for getting the issue of illegal logging on the international agenda. However, the presidential initiative on illegal logging, which the environmental community was was very supportive of as it was being developed, Greenpeace is is quite disappointed in this initiative. The issue is really 19 previously existing programs cobbled together, being called a new initiative. There is no new resources allocated to this. Additionally, the initiative only focuses on illegal logging happening in other countries and refuses to address the key question to get illegal logging under control, and that is the U.S. importation of forest products abroad. And it does not even attempt to distinguish between forest products that were harvested responsibly and forest products that were harvested in violation of laws. And the President's initiative refuses to give the information to the public that they need in order to make that decision. Thanks for taking this time with us. Scott Paul, campaign coordinator for Greenpeace Forest Initiatives. Thank you, Steve. International illegal logging has become such a cause for concern that George Bush has made it a top environmental priority. And the president has indeed announced a new initiative to help nations wipe out illegal logging within their borders. We've invited John Turner, Assistant Secretary of State for Oceans, International Environment, and Scientific Affairs, to talk to us about the administration's program. Hello, sir. Nice to visit with you, Steve. Assistant Secretary Turner, um, while we were researching this issue, some of the groups we talked to are concerned that they don't feel that there's anything new in the president's initiative, that it's mostly existing programs grouped together. Uh, What new programs uh, are planned for the future for this initiative? Well, it's uh, a lot of new efforts. Uh, Our our efforts uh, are going to be on the Amazon uh, basin, in the Congo basin, in Africa, Southeast and uh, Southern Asia, and then we hope to turn to Eurasia and Eastern Europe. The approach has been to focus on good governance, uh, help with laws, policies, uh, training of people in country. Of course, we need their acceptance and their receptivity. Second, using uh, American know-how and technology, whether it's remote sensing to track forests, a better way to track logs or in the marketplace, using the very powerful force of American markets, uh, as we recently did when we impounded several million dollars of uh, mahogany coming out of uh, South America, specifically Brazil. So uh, it's a cooperative effort with a lot of U.S. agencies working with the private sector, the NGO community, and we're, uh, we're getting cooperation and interest in a lot of countries around the world that are joining us in this. What... Uh in terms of finances are available for this, I'm thinking particularly of new money. This is a time of very tight budgets. So I'm wondering what kind of resources you're going to be able to add 
to the already existing initiatives we have around forests? Well, I know uh, that always interests the press, but the 04 budget, of course, is still uh, has not passed the Congress. In 03, the uh, expenditure by U.S. government was somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 20 million. And what we're doing is leveraging that with the NGO community, the private sector, foundations, and other governments. Let me ask you something from the perspective of a consumer. I recently bought uh, a deck chair. It's made out of teak. And um, in this line of work, I know that a lot of teak is harvested illegally. There was no way for me to tell, though, if the chair that I bought came from appropriately or inappropriately harvested teak. What about having an initiative to tell people if uh, if the uh, the timber they're getting is uh, properly harvested? Well, it's an excellent question, Steve. How do we know the product, the, the piece of lumber we buy or the coffee table uh, comes from a legitimate source? And it's such a complicated issue from the remote area in a tropical forestry forest all the way to the uh, shelf of the marketplace. We're certainly uh, looking at making progress. We've got uh, leaders like uh, Home Depot that are committed to going the extra mile to see that their uh, products are legally sourced to international treaties where uh, products that are especially endangered uh, will be tracked with paperwork. But it's a tough problem. And the NGO community, of course, has been working with the private sector on certification in certain countries. Uh, we're certainly not there yet, but I think uh, we need to give that kind of awareness and ways of tracking to the consumer. Thanks for taking this time to talk with me today. Well, thank you, Steve. John Turner is Assistant Secretary of State for Oceans, International Environment, and Scientific Affairs. For more information about illegal logging around the globe and the consequences for the environment and human rights, go to our website, livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. There's more to come on Living on Earth, including a report from Jeff Young in Washington about how the Bush administration is weighing in on two cases now before the U.S. Supreme Court. But first, I want to invite you to join me on a walking and riding safari in some of Africa's greatest natural areas. Heritage Africa has arranged for a Living on Earth expedition to spend several days hiking and driving near the Timbavadi River in Kruger National Park in South Africa. This is an area famous for its rich population of lions, elephants, and rhinos, as well as endangered cheetahs and wild African dogs. And then it's off to the Amadiba tribal area in a ruggedly beautiful territory that lies between the Mzamba and Mtentu rivers on the Indian Ocean. The area is called the Wild Coast, but it may not be so wild for very long. A major highway is being planned for the region, and mining concessions are also threatening to change this exquisite landscape forever. We'll take time to document this story and the story of the Mpando people who have developed an ecotourism program based on community ownership. They'll take us by horseback and by canoe through their stunning homeland and put us up in simple but comfortable camps. There are two ways you can come along on this safari. Buy a ticket to assure your place and also help us here at Living on Earth. You can also take a chance to win a trip for two. For details, go to livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org to join me, Steve Kerwood, beginning May 1st on Safari in Africa. The U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments recently on two cases that will affect air quality in California and water quality in the Florida Everglades. And as Living on Earth's Jeff Young reports, the Bush administration took the unusual step of weighing in on both cases. Western oil companies, Detroit engine makers, and a Florida water pump all had help from the Bush administration when they went before the nation's highest court. Engine makers and oil companies want to stop rules requiring clean vehicle fleets in Southern California. There, owners of 15 or more trucks, cars, or buses must buy the cleanest vehicles on the market. The Engine Manufacturers Association's Jed Mandel says that goes beyond the intent of the Clean Air Act and could lead to a country with a hodgepodge of standards. It's very important to recognize that these vehicles are produced on an assembly line in one part of the country and sold nationwide, and that if we allow separate jurisdictions to adopt separate emission regulations, that we're going to end up with a balkanized set of rules that will simply not allow uh, manufacturers to cost-effectively sell vehicles. Mandel says that's why the law limits who can set vehicle emission standards. But clean air advocates say these are not standards for those who make fleets of autos, but rules for those who buy them to pick the cleanest models. 
Gail Fuhrer of the Natural Resources Defense Council says the rules are needed to address the biggest sources of air pollution, the ones on wheels. If the court rules in the favor of the engine manufacturers and the oil industry, it really will doom regions around the country to decades of dirty air for us and for our children. The clean water case asks whether a pumping station at the edge of the Everglades should be held to federal water pollution standards. South Florida Water District Manager Nicholas Gutierrez says no, because it doesn't pollute water, it just moves it. We're not adding pollutants to water. We are simply uh, moving water to keep 136,000 residents of western Broward County from flooding. The water is runoff polluted by phosphorus, and environmental attorney Dexter Leighton says that hinders Everglades restoration. That's what it's about. They say that the water that's polluted anywhere in the U.S. can be moved to any other water body, and we say no. Both cases could affect clean water and air across the country as western states import more water and cities struggle to meet more stringent air standards for soot and smog. And in both cases, President Bush's top lawyers argued against regulation. Environmentalists say that's a reversal by federal government that hinders state efforts at pollution prevention and cleanup. Bill Becker represents state and local air pollution control agencies. We're bewildered. I mean, if ever there was a tailor-made case for the federal government in this administration to be supporting states' rights, this is it. And we're very disappointed that they would weigh in on the other side. The justices are expected to rule on both cases this summer. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington. Coming up, biomonitoring, a movement to help people find out how many PCBs and other chemicals are in their bodies. First, this note on emerging science from Jennifer Chu. Anyone who lives near a hog farm will tell you the smell isn't pretty. The source of that smell is large open pits filled with hog waste that's been flushed out of hog houses. In recent years, many of these pits have been decommissioned. For instance, in North Carolina, there are 1,700 inactive sites. To clean up these pits, farmers have to drain the liquid and then truck the solid waste away for use as fertilizer. But farmers complain this process is very costly. Now there may be a cheaper and greener solution to this disposal problem, poplar trees. Researchers in North Carolina have taken a half-acre pit, drained out the liquid, filled the hole with soil, and planted over 300 poplar trees. The roots of these trees grow faster and deeper than most others, and scientists have found they can absorb 3,000 gallons of sludge per acre per day. This sludge contains nutrients for the trees, such as nitrogen and phosphorus. The heavy metals in the waste, like copper and zinc, are stored in the tree's tissue. Researchers believe the trees will act as a sponge and prevent these contaminants from leaking into groundwater. Hog farmers can opt to harvest the trees for lumber once the site is completely cleaned up. Scientists estimate that would take up to 15 years. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Jennifer Chu. And you're listening to NPR's Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In many cities and towns across the U.S., you can read the local newspaper to find out what's in the air you breathe. And in many communities, the water company will tell you what's coming out of the tap. It's useful information, but these days some people are demanding more. They want to find out what synthetic chemicals are in their blood, urine, and breast milk. Scientists at the National Centers for Disease Control have started keeping data on what substances are found in the tissues of the average American. But some people say averages aren't enough, that there's an individual right to know as well. In California, groups are pushing a bill that would set up the first statewide collection and analysis of human fluids. Living on Earth's Ingrid Lobet reports on the growing trend in biomonitoring. As Charles Patton sat in a tiny clinic room watching her blood fill yet another vial, she mused that after years as an activist lobbying against persistent chemicals, she would finally learn her own chemical fingerprint, what had built up in her body over a lifetime. When the results were emailed to her, she compared notes with several friends. Well, we all had funny different reactions to it. I mean, some of us looked at our, our scores and felt good because our numbers were less than other people in the group. I mean, there was that kind of little reaction. And I looked at my PCB levels and realized they were really high. And I thought, my goodness, I've just about won the PCB contest. 
and that my dioxin levels are as high as the levels of some folks that live in、uh, Louisiana in Cancer Alley. The levels were a surprise for Patton because she's chosen to live amid the wild green of Bolinas, a famously remote community on the coast north of San Francisco. I grew up in Colorado, in a high mountain town, far away from factories and industry and incinerators. Right, growing our own cattle, our own vegetables. So the fact that I had these high levels said a couple of things. First of all, it's really hard to figure out the pathway of exposure by looking at your body burden levels. You just really don't know. You can't tell. There's no little marker on that chemical that says it was manufactured by this company or this is where you got it. There's no way I can send a bill to anyone for using my body as a toxic waste site. Patton's body, it turned out, contained 105 of the 210 metals and synthetic chemicals researchers tested for. Safe levels for many haven't been set. Her test results are consistent with other studies in the United States and Europe that chart the intrusion of the industrial age on the human body. Certain pesticides, for example, and PCBs used in plastics and insulators, find their way into living things and settle in fat. Some are passed to babies in utero. Interest in body burden testing or biomonitoring has spiked since the late 1990s, when scientists discovered that a type of chemical flame retardants called PBDEs had rapidly been building up in animals and humans. As reported previously on Living on Earth, those flame retardants used in foam mattresses, drapes, and furniture have now been found just about everywhere researchers have looked for them. In whales, in seabird eggs, in seals, and in breast milk, and nowhere higher than the United States. Speaking last year on this program, California State Toxicologist Tom McDonald explained why these fire suppressants are a concern for developing babies. There's three primary concerns that we have with respect to health effects, and those include、uh, neurodevelopmental changes, meaning learning and memory deficits in children, also、uh, thyroid hormone disruption. As well as、uh, possibly cancer, the concern basically comes from animal studies that have all shown that either in rats and mice, when you give PBDs to them, either in utero or early after birth, you get permanent changes in behavior and learning and memory. At the same lab where researchers found the flame retardants in seals and American breast milk, another researcher is taking the issue one step further. Environmental biochemist Kim Hooper is asking a question you don't often hear from American scientists: whether the current way of regulating chemicals is sufficiently protective of fetal and infant health. For the last twenty-five、uh, years, we've been following this paradigm of. We need to show a chemical disease, human disease connection, and it hasn't worked because we're not really regulating that many more chemicals than we were 25 years ago. So we need some kind of new paradigm, and one new paradigm would be: let's look at body burdens. Let's look at chemical body burdens. Hooper and others made sure their research on PBDEs made it into the hands of activists. Then, breast cancer activists, in particular, helped get two widely used flame retardants banned in California last summer. Next, the manufacturer volunteered to stop making them, but the activists want more. Donna Brownsey is a lobbyist in Sacramento for the Breast Cancer Fund. She hopes a program for broad body burden testing might one day reveal why one in eight women in the United States develops breast cancer. We believe breast cancer is a public health crisis. We believe we can no longer just ask women to be dutiful about doing monthly exams. We have to start looking at environmental causation. And Brownsey believes the increased interest in biomonitoring indicates a shift in public attitude. We think that、uh, finally some of these environmental issues、uh, have rightfully taken their place as environmental health issues. The emerging movement in America to test human beings for chemicals has found its center in the office of California State Senator Deborah Ortiz. She's sponsoring a bill that would create a statewide human monitoring program, the first in the country. There are other countries that have actually done this:、uh, Sweden, Germany, as well, that have been doing this over time and measuring body burden. So some would suggest that 
you know, we're behind the curve in California. If her bill becomes law, scientists would choose three distinct communities for initial testing. Senator Ortiz, who chairs the Senate Health Committee, sees biomonitoring as a powerful political tool because it could reveal geographic differences in exposure. So that we can, in fact, measure women who live in East Los Angeles near an incinerator or women who live in an area in the Central Valley where there's a lot of arsenic in the water, as well as women who live in non heavily populated, non-industrial areas. I'd like to get us to the point where we have so much information that we can't turn a blind eye, that we can't turn our back to the huge, huge problems and the risks that we're placing on women throughout California. And maybe that data will get us there. Ortiz's emphasis on women points to one sensitive aspect of the California bill. It intends to find out what's in people's bodies by testing breast milk. Breast milk contains more fat, and so more of the fat-loving chemicals than blood, and you don't need a needle to extract it. But advocates of the bill, like Donna Brownsey, say there's a political reason for choosing breast milk, too. We believe that if breast milk talks, people will listen. Little Nicholas Howard clamps his mouth onto his mother's breast, but then he notices a microphone intruding on his nursing nirvana, and there's another distraction, his buddy Antonio. Some worry that using breast milk as the test fluid might dissuade some women from breastfeeding. I ran that concern past nursing moms Jane D'Onofrio and Carolyn Howard. Um, I would give a sample immediately. I don't know. What do you think? I would want to. I, I would be interested in giving a sample. Um, and first of all, to just see what was in my actual actual breast milk, because that would give me more information. And um, so I wouldn't have any reservations about going ahead and giving a, giving a sample. Absolutely. I mean, that's why I think we eat the way we eat when you know you're giving it to your baby. It's like, okay, well, I'll get the organic peppers, even if they're more expensive, because it's worth it. And breast milk, like in relation to formula, I think, okay, there's negative things in it, but maybe that's like where we can address our society on a whole with toxins in our world. You know, it's more of a societal huge issue as to why we have these things in our bodies and why certain things are contaminated. Few people have contemplated both the contamination and the health benefits of breast milk as much as biologist Sandra Steingraber of Ithaca College. Steingraber has been calling for a national dialogue on contaminants in breast milk. I asked her to read from a letter recently published in the Ribbon Newsletter from Cornell University. Breastfed infants have fewer respiratory infections, diarrhea, middle ear infections, and die less often from sudden infant death syndrome. Breastfed infants grow into children who suffer less than their bottle-fed counterparts from juvenile diabetes, rheumatoid arthritis, obesity, dental malocclusions, and some leukemias. They respond more vigorously to vaccinations. They have better hearing and visual acuity. They develop balance and gross motor coordination more quickly. It's also true that breast milk commonly violates Food and Drug Administration action levels for poisonous substances in food. Were it regulated like infant formula, the breast milk of many U.S. mothers would not be able to be legally sold on supermarket shelves. Steingraber is always careful to send a pro-breastfeeding message. She makes sure she's always photographed breastfeeding her two-year-old. The people who are advocating it in the public health community, in the lactation community, the midwifery community, pediatricians and obstetricians, they're very touchy about any negative comment about breastfeeding and breast milk. So, and I I feel that way myself. On the other hand, I don't think public health is ever served by keeping secrets and the idea that nursing women should be protected against knowledge about what's in their milk to me is profoundly condescending and certainly as a nursing mother myself, I certainly want to know what's in my milk in the same way I want to know about infant car seat recalls. 
But while advocates of biomonitoring see it as a right-to-know issue, others with a strong interest see some efforts, such as California's, as lacking focus and even irresponsible. In a letter to Senator Ortiz, the American Chemistry Council says it's wrong to test breast milk and then somehow see the results as an indicator of community health. The council, which represents chemical manufacturers and users, didn't respond to requests for an interview. But in the letter, it suggests that biomonitoring. Advocates mustn't confuse chemical exposure with illness, and some scientists share that concern. To many people, knowing that they're exposed spells disease. Exposure isn't a disease. Exposure is contact and absorption of a chemical. At the University of California at Riverside, toxicologist Robert Krieger and his associates analyze pesticides in human urine. Krieger supports the federal biomonitoring studies carried out by the Centers for Disease Control, but he believes the kind of biomonitoring where individuals get their own results back could cause unnecessary alarm. It's possible to measure much, much less than the amounts. That have any biological significance in terms of health, and given the poor general information that people have about chemicals in their bodies,、uh, I would think that a program such as that might carry more liabilities than benefits. I can give you an example、okay. here of、uh, a compound that I've I found while while I was doing an analysis. Researcher Travis Dinoff. Points to a screen showing a waveform of one chemical in a urine sample from a farm worker. It turns out to be oxybenzone, which is a sunscreen. If somebody had got a result back that said they had been exposed to oxybenzone, you know, they might say, "Oh God, I've been exposed to this chemical," but it's actually something that they've actually put on their skin on purpose, and those、uh, compounds are going to be absorbed and excreted somehow out of the body. Professor Krieger is suspicious that many people who want widespread biomonitoring really just want a backdoor to more chemical regulation. The numbers game is is very treacherous, and the the normal strategy is to find a low level of something, and associate risk with it, and then regulate that material at extremely low levels as though you're removing a risk. If the risk was Nil or zero when you started. No matter how much you reduce it, you haven't done anything. The public has not gained anything. Krieger's concerned the side effects of that could be wasted money and an unwarranted fear of chemicals. To see if other researchers share this worry, I turn to Dana Barr, who's worked on the biomonitoring program at the Centers for Disease Control and heads the pesticide lab there. I asked her if she has reservations about testing as a tool in the hands of individuals.、Uh, I do, because when you get all of these data, a lot of them aren't that easy to interpret right now on an individual basis. There are some that.、Um, Do have a clinical outcome associated with them? For instance, lead or mercury exposure, and so getting tested for those would make real sense because then you could reduce the exposure. There's some sort of an inter- intervention that could occur. If you get tested for many of these other chemicals, we really don't know if there are health outcomes associated with it, and so the data are largely uninterpretable on an individual scale. But Dana Barr says she welcomes testing in city and state-run programs, like ones being planned for New York City, New England, the Rocky Mountain West, and California. Oh, I think it's an outstanding idea, and I think it's very important to get at this geographic information because we do know that the geography and whether you live close to an agricultural region or whether you live close to an inner city, that that can affect what exposures you actually get. As biomonitoring gathers steam, these initiatives are likely to meet stiff resistance from chemical producers and users, especially if they call on the companies to pay for the testing, as California's bill now does. But whether new, broader testing materializes this year or much later, its backers have raised intriguing questions about the right and the desire to know. For Living on Earth, I'm Ingrid Lobet. And for this week, that's Living on Earth. Next week. Mercury. It's a well-known toxic metal that damages the nervous system. We try to keep it out of the food we eat and the air we breathe, but in some communities, it's sprinkled around the house, burned in a candle, and applied to the body, often to bring luck. I think we're not just being contaminated by the incinerator. 
Um, I think we're being contaminate, contaminating ourselves by using this product at our homes. The Ritual Use of Mercury, next week on Living on Earth. Until then, you can hear us anytime and get the stories behind the news by going to livingonearth.org. That's livingonearth.org. We leave you along the banks of the Ruhr River in Essen, Germany. Michael Rusenberg recorded these sounds at the city's main hydroelectric power station and mixed them into a composition he calls Baldene Ein Soundscape Ballet. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. You can find us at livingonearth.org. Our staff includes Carly Ferguson, Nathan Marcy, Susan Shepard, and Tom Simon. Al Avery runs our website. Our interns are Christopher Bolick and Nal Tarot. Special thanks to Ernie Silver. Allison Dean composed our themes. Environmental sound art courtesy of Earth Ear. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, supporting the Living on Earth Network, Living on Earth's expanded Internet service. Support also comes from NPR member stations and the Annenberg Foundation, and Toms of Maine, maker of natural care products and creator of the Rivers Awareness Program to preserve the nation's waterways. Information at participating stores or tomsofmaine.com. This is NPR, National Public Radio.